Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Aggressor Adventures. For over 35 years, we've designed adventure vacations around the world, helping travelers experience the majesty of the oceans and the call of the wild on our dive trips, river cruises, and safaris. From the Galapagos Islands and the South Pacific to the land of the pharaohs on the Nile River, with personalized service in every vacation destination. Aggressor. Adventures of a Lifetime. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. If you've been enjoying the Surviving Life with Les Stroud podcast, then you may have already listened to my keynote speech given at the Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta, Canada. Part of my duties there were to host the Titans panel. This was myself sitting in between four of the greatest names in bushcraft and primitive skills that have ever lived. The late, great Morris Kochansky, Professor André-François Brabeau, David Westcott, and David Halliday. After introducing them, we passed the microphone around and discussed some of the history of bushcrafting, and though we didn't intend to devolve into a serious tone about the issues of teaching these skills today, we definitely hopped on a train towards dealing with the way bushcraft skills are taught today versus the 1970s when it all began with Larry Dean Olson. The legal issues, and even the absolute onslaught of pretend bushcrafters now populating the lucrative YouTube platform. To set the stage, we were sitting in a room with a couple of hundred people on the last day of the Bushcraft Symposium. These are the words of the Bushcraft Titans. I think probably the, the coolest thing is to watch the advancement in the, in the application of the skills. In other words, what was going on in the 70s, nobody was doing handrails. I mean, it was very rare if anybody was doing a handrail. Pottery was still pretty much unknown. Uh, how to do that kind of stuff. So it, everything was really rudimentary. Even though there was lots of good books on it, there was not that many great practitioners. Mountain man's the only man leaves a lot behind. In the 70s, in the 80s, even in the 90s, we would just get away with anything. There were no rules, no, no restrictions, no insurance problems, and nothing else. And then all of a sudden, there were a few accidents. We was wide and narrow and the sparrow showed the path he was to follow as it flew. We're suffering from uh, not enough people to fill a lot of the roles, so we got to hire people from Europe to fill in what a Canadian should actually fill in. I don't like the fact that people that are the most ingenuous and incapable knife handlers become representatives of knife companies. Stuff like that. Jeremiah Johnson made his way into the mountains, betting on forgetting all the troubles that he knew. Seated before you are four legends and David Halliday. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting to do that for three days. <laughs> uh, this is, yes, the titans of bushcraft. The real motivation behind all of this 
on one level, of course, is to recognize certain individuals in a very magnanimous way, such as Mr. Kochansky, but also to recognize that these skills of bushcraft, and this is, in many ways, they're fairly actually recent. Some, a lot of these skills came about maybe 100 years ago, and maybe 70, 80 years ago, 112 or 140 years ago. And these gentlemen are part of the initial team of people or were students of the initial group of people that brought it, them to the forefront, that brought, made them desirable, if you will, in their writings, in their teachings, uh, and their continued passion for them. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about a, a group of skill sets that is relatively young in many ways, and these are the pioneers right in front of you, right here. Morris Kochansky is obviously a legend. He's a legend to me. I've just met him for the first time this morning. But of course I had his book. I'm not sure if, uh, of my cronies who didn't have it. It came out in 1987. Okay, great. That is what Morris is so famously known for, his book. But that's not where it stops. Northern Bushcraft is an incredible book that, ins that inspired and put fire under all of us to love and, and to explore these skills. But I'm sure Morris would, would agree with this, that is that, okay, that's my book. And then there's 40 years of teaching, of educating, of having passion behind these skills, of furthering the research, education, and scholarship of wilderness skills. That's why Morris is a legend. The book, that's one thing he did. There are thousands of other things that he did, and his students would attest to that. David Westcott, I've been joking with Dave that I didn't know if he'd remember me from back in the day because I did have the chance of meeting him once upon a time. David started learning skills with none other than Larry Dean Olson. That was in 1971. He went on to start Boulder Outdoor School of Survival, BOSS. BOSS, in my world, as a survival guy learning in Toronto, Ontario, and going to different places, BOSS was like legendary. It's like, well, you, you got to get down to BOSS. You almost really were known to have not truly cut your teeth if you didn't get through BOSS at some point. At one point, well, David did three 30 days in a row with one day in between each one, followed by two more 14 days. The man is a legend. Yes. He also restarted Rabbit Stick Primitive Skills Rendezvous. Also legendary amongst all of us learning how to do the fireball for the first time was you got to get down to Rabbit Stick. He also, there's a lot of also's with David Westcott, founding board member of the Society of Primitive Technology, a go-to must-have publication that was in my library and still is to this day. I still have my old copies. Right now, his passion is classic camping, and as a result, he's published his third book just a few years ago, Camping in the Old Style. Before you, you see a man that is a lifer, point and simple. David Westcott is a lifer. He was there before, he's been there during, and he's there after. This is not something that he's going to lose interest in anytime soon. It's not getting old for David Westcott. David Halliday, the words are that he's one of the foremost educators in primitive living skills, lecturer, author, consultant. He's been a consultant on many TV shows. Only one of note, Survivor Man. It's the only one I'm mentioning. <laughs> and also Castaway, actually, uh, the famous movie. I don't even know how I got in touch with, uh, I'm sure it was one of those things, you gotta talk to this guy. You're gonna go to Arizona, you need to talk to this guy. And we met up and it's one of those instant brotherhood moments that you have with certain individuals in your life. He has always remarked about the fact that when I came to learn from him, I took no notes, I made no recordings, and on my part, that's fine. It's because I adored what he was teaching me, and I don't, he didn't know that at the time. Many months later, when he finally got to see the final cut, what he remarked about, what he saw, and what he never took offense to because I meant it as an honoring situation, I quoted him verbatim, word for word, everything he taught me. And for me, it's because I can't take credit for this hand drill or this pin cushion, you know, cherry fruit that I'm eating. But this man could. I needed to quote him verbatim because he was the master and I was the student. My show was just a facilitation of what I could do. It was a party trick. But he was the master and he is a master. It's calm, cool, and collected. Sadly, I've seen him naked. 
You can't unsee certain things in this life, ladies and gentlemen. And he taught me the itsy bitsy spider move on the hand drill. And you know what? When he explained it to me that way, I, uh, oh, I get it now. It's a bit, I get it. We're doing itsy bitsy spider up and down the hand drill. I only got my hand drill because of him. That is David Halliday. Once again, I will refer to the words and then I will share my story about Andre Francois Bourbeau, my Canadian partner and friend, uh, survival expert, professor emeritus at the University of Quebec, Oshikurimi. He co-founded Survival Skills Outdoor Adventure Program at the university level. You can imagine the kind of things this, this gentleman has been up against in academia to put survival skills into university. I mean, the, the amount of snickering and pushback that he must have endured over the years, but he endured, endured he did, and his accomplishments are adored by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students over all these years. He's taught there for more than 30 years. Here's my Andre-Francois Bobo. When I went to spend uh, a year living in the woods, this is long before Survivor Man, but I was already probably 12 15, 14 years, a survival instructor, right? So I knew my firebow inside and out. But now I'm about to spend a year in the bush. I had seen the film work that had been done on him and I knew there was one man I needed to contact. So with my wife at the time, we were to spend that year, we drove to Quebec to meet Andre. And if you've met him already, you already know what I first ran into. I had a broken hand and a bear hug within the first 60 seconds. And from then on again, the kinship and the brotherhood, he pointed out to us things that were obvious to him and completely missed by us, which means it was missed by all of the books we, we were reading, the films, the, all of that was, we'd missed certain things he knew and saved, in many ways, he saved a lot of pain and strife for us to live out in the bush because of what he knew. I found myself in his apartment or house, I can't remember at the time, sitting on his couch with Andre standing five feet in front of me with a guitar in his hand singing achy breaky art at the top of his lungs. I'm, I'm learning music less. I know you play. Here, let's. And all I got was, don't break my art, my achy breaky art with a French Canadian accent. Now fast forward to many years later, I'm doing a charity concert and I meet Billy Ray Cyrus, who turns out to be a Survivor Man fan who comes over with a beer in his hand. Hey, we've been watching you. And all I can hear in my head is, don't break my art, my achy breaky art. <laughs> so there, <laughs> there we go, ladies and gentlemen. This symposium is honoring Morris Kochansky. We stand and sit and relax and, and hover on grass in awe of these four gentlemen and others amongst us in absolute awe. But we also follow in the footsteps of some other absolute masters. Larry Dean Olson, Steve Watts, Jim Riggs, Richard Jameson, and Eric Callahan. Now we can applaud. And once again, I refer to that time period of the 60s and the 70s. That was the beginning of it all. That was what got, brought it into the hands of these gentlemen and then into the hands on down the line to all of you here today. So this is called the Titans of Bushcraft. And here they sit, absolute titans and legends in this industry. The question is what contributions to bushcraft and survival education do you think is uniquely Canadian? The canoe. Le canoe. There was more fur trade in Canada and therefore more canoeing. And I can't say anything more intelligent than that right now. Well, how is that uniquely Canadian? Minnesotans might say, oh, we had the canoe too, you know. Maine might say, we had the canoe yeah. too, you know. But the main fur trade routes go up north and go out west into Canada. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying they didn't, didn't go into what is now the, uh, the northeastern uh, forest trail. That they, you know, of course, 
but uh, at the same time, just a little bit more of it north. How, how is it unique to Canada? How are bushcraft skills? How, how, how are they unique to Canada? Within, within the scope of the canoeing and the fur trade and the roots, because you're quite right. I mean, yeah. Well, well I think it's a, a question of weather. The weather's colder, wetter, tougher in Canada because it's further north. You know, I was discussing it with, with David in Arizona, Utah, Colorado. I did my doctorate in Colorado. Hell, it's way easier than in Quebec. When I teach my summer course in Quebec in November, no, it's snowy rain for 12 days in a row, night and day for 12 days. I mean, that is rough weather. And I think that those bushcraft skills to face that kind of weather are unique to Canada. David Westcott, it's sort of a similar question to you. We'll just stick with the Canadian theme for this opening question. The contributions that um, are made in this Canadian sense, uh, what's your perspective on that, it's, it, the differentiation? I mean, we're not here to create a border, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we're well aware of the fact that we are blood brothers and sisters up and down, and there is no such thing as, as a border to us. But nonetheless, in the sense of Canadian pride, where do you see the, uh, that perspective in the larger picture of bushcraft itself? If you look at survival in the U.S., Larry, well, Larry Olson is probably the nexus point. I mean, more people would attach to him than anything else, so there's a common language and a common way of looking at things from that. So in Canada, I think that the nexus is Morris when it comes to bushcraft. And as a result, you all speak the same language and you all radiate kind of from the same energy source. In the U.S., in bushcraft, we don't have that, and so it's just kind of this psychotic thing going on down there. So, so, I, so I think that's probably the, the, the thing, is you've got one hub that you're looking at as a result. You've got this kind of unified view of how things should go. And Morris as well, your, your thoughts on the matter of, of Canadian bushcraft, not necessarily versus American, just simply the unique Canadian perspective on the, on, on the, the passion and the pursuit of these skills. Well, I think the igloo or the snowhouse is probably not built much in the States like it is in Canada. <laughs> the whole of Canada, we probably have less trees and shrubs, which is about 3,500, than in a square mile of Brazilian forest. So we're kind of sparse and uh, you, you're not overwhelmed by the resources. So we're a country that's not influenced by excessive heat. So we have a certain type of vigor I know that Canadian soldiers were far more adaptable to almost any climate than most other people because we were used to the heat of the summer and the cold of the winter. And so generally we experienced a lot of that, so we knew uh, how to uh, cope. So we have very hot summers and, uh, and, and very cold winters. I specialize in the boreal forest, so I found that if I confined myself intensely to boreal forest conditions, uh, I was uh, less spread out, you might say. So probably one of the aspects of popularity of the, the, the way I handled the subject in bushcraft, the trees and shrubs generally are found so extensively, and there's only a dozen or, or so, so you don't have to like learn about gazillions of different types of things to, to master that, the birch tree, the spruce, we call it the spruce moose forest. So you find a lot of moose perhaps, more than we find elsewhere. A comment that I have often heard in traveling the world is getting uh, a comment of romanticism on say a particular tribe and say, oh, they're just so much better at survival than we are. And I, and I quite cock, in a very cocky fashion would say, oh really? Well, we're in Peru. Let me bring him up to northern Quebec in the middle of winter. Let me see how good he does up there. <laughs> and so it became, you know, which of course is just Canadian pride, but it's a matter of you, many people are, are really good at what they do where they are. I, I want to uh, continue with you for a second, Morris. We would love to hear uh, when you first connected with the Americans, with uh, Mr. Westcott, Mr. Halliday, and Larry Dean Olson, can you give us uh, your first impressions upon meeting these individuals? 
Well, Larry Dean Olson came out with the, with the book, The Outdoor Survival Skills, which is quite unique at the time. And he was working with, uh, there's a program uh, that I called the Anasazi program, that he called the Anasazi program. And uh, I heard enough about it that I tried to contact him, but he never answered my letters. <laughs> I think I bought about, in life, I think I bought about 100 uh, copies of his book and then passed them on further because of the nature of the, the uh, basic, uh, clear, uh, fundamental, solid sound. I stole a lot from his book. Uh, the, uh, if you look hard enough, he didn't seem to notice there are a lot of things that you would find in, in his book that ended up in mine. You know, um, so I met Dave, who came and visited with me with regard to, I think, winter skills. And I ended up going there. And I was really looking forward to, to uh, visiting with Larry Dean Olson. And he was like a, I thought, is it me? He's like a, pump, <laughs> a slippery pumpkin seed because I sidled up to him talking the next thing he was gone. And so I never could really uh, sit down and really get to uh, until the, the wood smoke affair where we sat for hours and talked. But up to then, uh, I could never ever pin him down long enough. My impression was that Boulder Outdoor Survival School was going to incorporate a winter aspect to what they did. And actually, eventually, they, they would come to my place. Dave Westcott ended up coming to visit I was very pleased for him to come down and see what we were doing. The other day, well, you, most of you Canadians don't realize he's a very close relative, Louis Riel, uh, you know, the historical aspect. So his ancestors go back a long way. And uh, I met him, and I, it struck me as very scholarly and very knowledgeable in his element. I thought he was... Sometimes his shirts were a little ragged and torn, so, so, I, so I would, you know, shirts that I could honestly <laughs> feel, feel that they were passive. You know, I wasn't going to bring the worst shirts, so when the, when the rabbit stick was over, I'd give him the shirts of my back. And, uh, and so, so I hope that maybe as an instructor, he wouldn't get too bedraggled. And... Uh, he, he might failed at that one, I guess. <laughs> um, Mr. Halliday, yes. uh, tell us the hand drills. Would you, if you wouldn't mind in regaling the audience with the hand drill story and David Westcott. All right. Uh, boy, his wife and him tell a different version. So, I was a single parent uh, with a four-year-old boy uh, teaching school in Tucson. And I needed to recover from being stuck in the city for nine months. And so I'd go live on my land on Deer Creek and I would just go as Paiute as the white guy can possibly go. So I, was, I, I learned all my skills by looking through the glass and imagining things and wondering how did they do this since I was four. And so Larry's book just helped me get a little 30,000 year leap, but I still wanted to be a caveman, right? So I was living as caveman as possible, with little clothes as possible, eating as little food as possible from any kind of resupply situation. And my son was four, and he didn't know how to complain yet, and he thought that's how life was. <laughs> so all summer long, I'd said that I wasn't going to be able to do any fire if I didn't make it myself with no other tools but what I could use Stone Age. And so at one point, this big big, loud uh, Chevy pickup comes in with a boulder outdoor survival on the door. And Dave's wife and he get out and they begin to tell us, uh, first of all, he tells me how uh, disappointed he is that all the big money's being made by the most disingenuous liars in the industry at the time. And I say, well, I don't know who they are, but I'm against uh, ingenuous liars myself. You know, so we're, bu we're buddies all, instant buddies because he doesn't like phonies and I don't like phonies. And so we talk for a long time and then he says, well, would you show us about the hand drill fire? The, well, the way he knew about it is Larry told him that there's a guy living on Deer Creek that knows how. Because nobody knew how to do it back then, but like four, I was the fourth person that Larry knew of in white culture that was capable of that at the time. So I was, I didn't know I was a big deal, but Westcott comes to find me and says, show me how to do it. So I fail, and then I fail, 
and then I fail, and I fail, and it's summertime, and it's getting dark. That makes it about 9.30 or 10. And so I've been failing for hours now after talking about ingenuous people who talk a lot and can't do what they say they're going to do. I got huge blisters and never got a fire. And I laid down and I took that hand drill and that hearth and I just threw them. And they're not very heavy, so they only flew about 15 yards. They landed in a, in a, service, in a, in a sumac bush, lemonade berry bush. And they didn't hit the ground, but I didn't know that because it was too dark. And I laid down and I went to sleep. And normally I get up and pee about three or four times a night. That night... I didn't wake up. And I woke up in the morning at 4.30 or 5 in the dawn, light dawn, with drooling into the sand. And the first thing I saw was that hand drill and that hearth in that bush a long ways across the way. And I said, why didn't those work? So I went and grabbed them. And I got a spark first time down the spindle. And I thought, I'm going to keep this thing alive. And I grabbed my four-year-old and I got him on my shoulders with my Apache match. And I marched to Boulder, Utah, the, the seven-something miles. Or it's probably only four and a half across the mesas if you cut, you know, off. So I went cross-country, got to Dave's trailer, doom, 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 and I think it's late in the day, and he's just waking up. It's like seven in the morning now. And uh, in his boxer shorts and groggy eyes, he looks out the door at me and like, hi again. I just, you know, and I went, there's your fire, Mr. Westcott. <laughs> I'll be right back with the second half of this panel discussion with the titans of bushcraft. And in the meantime, and quite fitting, I believe, here's a track from my album, Bittern Lake. This is Jeremiah Johnson. Three, four. Johnson made his way into the mountains, betting on forgetting all the troubles that he knew. The way was wide and narrow, the eagle and the sparrow showed the path he was to follow as it flew. Mountain man's a lonely man Leaves a lot behind It ought to have been different Often times you'll find The story doesn't always go The way you had in mind And Jeremiah's story was that kind Yes, Jeremiah's story was that kind
You know what? Aggressor Adventures, while being the largest liveaboard dive operation in the world, is so much more. They have safaris and excursions to the corners of the globe, exciting opportunities to see vast archaeology, history, and natural wonders. I've been traveling and diving with them for years, and I cannot endorse them enough for being simply the best there is at making sure your worldwide adventure is a safe, comfortable, and exciting one. Take it from a guy who has done a lot of adventuring. Who do I travel with on my vacations? Aggressor Adventures. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. If you're enjoying this podcast, please listen to my keynote from the same weekend within season one of Surviving Life with Les Stroud. David Westcott, if we want to use semantical terms, you know, we're kind of toying with the idea that we're dealing with a golden era uh, of bushcraft and survival uh, skills, primitive earth technology. And David, you were in the thick of it, in the middle of it, all the way through it. Can you reflect upon that fact for us? Can you share with us, we know what it's like here and now, and everything we've been discussing for you know 36 hours here, but what was it like to be part of, of all of that, if you can reflect upon that? I think probably the, the coolest thing is to watch the advancement in the, in the application of the skills. In other words, what was going on in the 70s, nobody was doing handrails. I mean, it was very rare if anybody was doing a handrail. Pottery was still pretty much unknown, uh, how to do that kind of stuff. So it, everything was really rudimentary, even though there was lots of good books on it, there was not that many great practitioners. And they just all of a sudden started bubbling to the top. And when we started Rabbit Stick, our whole goal at Rabbit Stick was, to, was for my staff at Boss to meet as many of the best instructors as we could in, in the shortest amount of time. And so we started Rabbit Stick and just sent out a letter and said, if we did this, would you come? And lo and behold, we had uh, probably about 50 people at the first one came, and then it's grown to over 600 each one we do now. But, and, and we have probably 90 instructors teaching at those events. But the level of, of expertise is just mind-boggling now. What's, what is available to a person today is what was available to a person in 1970. And uh, the level of teaching has grown so far so fast that a lot of people don't realize that they really are standing on the shoulders of, of people who put a lot of time and energy into rediscovering how those things work. And I think a lot of them are getting lost in the, in the mist as we, as we go forward. I'd like to keep that from, from happening. Uh, the fact that there, these, these people were very important to what we're doing. Yeah, so that's the coolest thing, is, is to just have been a part of that legacy, of watching, it, watching it develop. What are the ways to keep that legacy going in your mind? Well, first learn it. At least my observation of what's going on in the States is that the appetite for content is so great with YouTube, everybody having, everybody having to post some, something every day or every week in order to monetize their sites, are just posting and, and pushing, putting as much content on the airwaves as they can, as fast as they can, without ever learning the context of it or where it came from, who taught it, who developed it, that kind of stuff. And so that's probably my biggest disappointment with what's happening right now. And my whole career has been focused on making sure that you give credit where credit is due, honor your mentors, and um, make sure that uh, you understand where this stuff comes from. And so a lot of it is, is gaining ground and being duplicated and replicated and used all over the place without, without ever having not only the interest, but the care, you know, caring where it comes from. Uh, and I think that's short, short circuiting the, the quality of a lot of what's available out there because it, it's, it's just scratching the surface. So it's lots of information that deep. And uh, I think I'd like to see that change, that people really take time to investigate stuff deeply. So I think that's an important point as far as, uh, as we would just superficially call it, putting the time in. I, you know, I, I touched on you know, the five senses becoming the sixth sense. That takes time. Kelly is uh, speaking to the fourth skill, which is essentially the same thing. It's really digging in, going from I was taught this to I've been experiencing this for some time now. So now even though I was taught it four years ago, I actually only understand it this weekend. Uh -huh. you know? and, and that, I agree, is something very, very important to these skills. Andre, your talk this morning was detailed 
I believe a bit on this next question. Um, so looking for a bit of a, a summary here, but so if we are to teach these skills in a way that we can present authenticity in them, and I'm thinking of the boss programs and all these different programs where in the end you kind of come home from the weekend going, glad nothing went wrong that weekend. Um, that could have gone sideways. Now, <laughs> I won't even go to the point of all the litigations and liabilities and all that, but if we want to continue teaching these skills in an authentic way, how do we do that while handling the risk of them at the same time, the inherent risk that is involved with taking people on 30 days out into the desert to bite rocks, so to speak, or stay in minus 45 degrees overnight? It's risk management. You know, I mean, I'm, I, th I think the outdoor world has gone full circle. In the 70s, in the 80s, even in the 90s, we would just get away with anything. There were no rules, no, no restrictions, no insurance problems, and nothing else. And then all of a sudden, there were a few accidents. And those few accidents got everybody out of the outdoor world. No more uh, classrooms, uh, outdoor classrooms. Kids don't go out in outdoor classrooms. There was a huge movement from the University of Illinois back then that, uh, you know, outdoor education and, and bring kids. For example, we had uh, some of my students were made a business out of bringing a prospector's tents in, into the schoolyards and having kids rotate to different outdoor activities. And, you know, this was called outdoor education. That all went down the drain because of there was no risk management. And because there was no risk management, all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. And nobody lets you do it anymore. The, the parents said, I'm not letting my kid go do that. He's going to die. And now it's starting to come back because you're proving to everybody that risk management works and we're bringing everybody back up to the level that is necessary to get it done right. So we're not putting anybody uh, saying, we're gonna take, oh, we're taking a beginner, we're putting him in an R3 rapid. No, we're taking a beginner, we're putting him in an R1 rapid, and then we're doing risk management and we're proving to everybody that before he goes into an R2 rapid, he's going to be trained enough to go into R2 rapid. The teacher is going to be trained enough to go into R2 rapids. And before we go to the R3 rapids, then there's gonna be this progression and risk management is doing that because it's proving to everybody what we've done. So the only way we're gonna get this to go full circle and to come back is through risk management, unfortunately, so that we can prove to everybody that it's not dangerous if we do it right or it's not more dangerous than anything else. And in risk management, we always say, you know, you go skiing, you break a leg, normal. You go hiking, you break a leg, not normal. In Australia, for example, they had a death of a kid in a, in a canoe program and uh, in a school, and their parents funded that same program to keep it going and get it going again because they had faith that it was a real accident because the risk management program was solid enough to, to handle it. So we're going full circle, and that's, I think, the answer. What's your, your thoughts on the future of this, keeping in mind the fear factor of, of the problems of, of litigation and liabilities and the fact that so many schools and people are afraid to teach a teenager how to hold a knife uh, sort of thing. What's your thoughts on this and moving forward and how we get back to, I guess, a better time of this? There's a evolution going on in some respects, especially, well, I don't, don't keep up with the issues, but I get the impression that the industrial arts programs that we have in the province are too expensive, too dangerous, and the hierarchy figures, why are we teaching in, in school? They want to pick up the technical type stuff, uh, do it on your own as a citizen, and avoid doing that, and so now we're suffering from uh, not enough people to fill a lot of the roles, so we gotta hire people from Europe to fill in what a Canadian should actually fill in, because that phenomenon is sort of seems to be prevalent. Too much trouble, too dangerous, too costly, therefore let's just uh, drop to a simpler mode where we don't uh, encounter that. Now, if we're talking about outdoor ed, we're 
you might often say that uh, uh, we can't be creating uh, environmental uh, desecration by lighting campfires and building lean-tos and, and all that sort of stuff that kids respond to. And so there is no outdoor ed. Uh, the sensitive environmentalists sort of uh, are saying, well, we want to learn more about Brazil, but they neglect to learn more about their own doorstep, you might say. And, and the big problem that I see in outdoor education, working with our kids from kindergarten to grade 12, was that phys ed teachers, who traditionally produced the uh, uh, lifeguards, swimming instructors, uh, canoeists, and skiers, were also stuck with outdoor ed when that should have gone, the outdoor ed should have been distributed with the home ec teacher for clothing and groceries and the science teacher for plants and the mathematic teacher. And so as a result, expecting the phys ed teacher to do everything, I think had a profound negative effect because they really uh, weren't very specifically trained or distributed their responsibility throughout the rest of the school. And I think the outdoor education, I don't know, I haven't, in the last Five years, I don't know what the state is because they stopped inviting me on account of my, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, cynical uh, situation that I saw no progress and that there was very little outdoor ed stuff. Outdoor ed, you cut, make bow beds, you, you, you build big fires to stay warm and so on. There are people that were in the position, oh, we don't want that. Whenever there is the issue of examining yet another survival manual, Usually the, clo the, 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 the fires and the shelters are just so... Uh, Made safe. Uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a continuum between kindergarten and grade 12, they rarely reach grade three. So how can you be sophisticated in a lot of that stuff? The teachers uh, wasn't around and emphatic enough. I said, when you teach a lean-to, you're supposed to discuss all of the things that an architect has to know uh, uh, to build a house, therefore that becomes part of the education. So when the kid birds a lean-to, they know about thermal mass and reflectivity and, and emissivity and uh, you know all those sort of things. Well, it's not incorporated into the curriculum because they don't recognize that's the way you should go and on and on. So I got, like I say, cynical and dropped out of the picture and I had more time at home with my family. <laughs> at, uh, because there, there were people in the school system that if I was introduced as a survivalist, they wouldn't shake my hand. They were so, uh, uh, so poor in good manners that they just didn't want to shake my hand because I was uh, lit big fires and desecrated the forest. Almost every environmentalist I saw said, if you had to take care of yourself with your attitude, you'd probably be dead within the week because of your negative, <laughs> negative notion, you missed the point. You're embroiled in environmentalism. And, and people would say, Morris, you, if you keep making those bow beds and those lean-tos, you're gonna eliminate the forest. And I say, well, I'm not exactly sure if everybody in Edmonton spit at the same time, would you have a flood? <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> anyway, I, I'm getting rusty on those, uh, type of things where I was always the devil's advocate and saying, you know, when, when they eliminate fire, I'd say I teach fire because so many kids would go home and see what's happening and say, Dad, you know, in Outdoor Ed, we, we were taught that if you do that, the house is going to burn down. The issue isn't fire for a campfire and a wiener roast. The issue is Fire plays such a big role in generating electricity and gazillion other sort of things. And every citizen should be knowledgeable with regard to staying safe around fires and not burn forests down and all that. That was the issue. And they missed the point. I'd love these two gentlemen's comments, starting with Mr. Halliday. Moving forward. Moving forward. I don't like the fact that people that are the most ingenuous and incapable knife handlers become representatives of knife companies. Stuff like that. So uh, without being nice at all, I'm gonna say, if I pretended to be a doctor, wouldn't I go to jail? 
If I pretended to be a police officer, wouldn't I go to jail? That said, I hate the paint-by-numbers world where we're going to make everybody go through some standard in order to become something. Because I don't ever become anything if I had to do that. You guys have decided I'm worth being on this panel by my actions, I guess. I hope I'm not just blowing hot air. I've done some things. Wait, you don't have your certificate? I don't, I don't have a thing. In fact, my college, my college career ended, my, my scholastic pursuits ended the day I met Larry Dean Olson. How do you create a system of creating credibility without squelching the free spirit of the event? Because otherwise you've created another series of laws and we're complaining about some of those laws right now. How do you do that to our world, our little survival world, or our outdoor living skills world, without pinching it into some little tiny corner where, where only uh, people that aren't uh, bothered by that can become instructors? How do you get an instructor certificate? Because I, I got one from Dave Westcott, but he never told me I did. He just kept inviting me back. <laughs> but when I met this amazing educator over here, Morska Hansky changed my life because I saw how much he was thrilled like us by the subject matter, but it was the most important thing was accuracy and truth in subject matter. That's what thrilled me. And I'd like to see some way for us to create that uh, pattern without squelching, uh, without making there be some kind of, you know, Nazi step, let's all get in line and be perfect according to who, you know. And so I'm kind of a rebel that way, but I, I'm really, you know, I'd almost like to leave it alone if it's going to go that way. And let phonies just drop out because everybody figures it out. Well, I don't think you're a rebel at all. I mean, um, there's, that's a murmur of discussion that's been going on, and Chris and I were chatting about it. I'd like to see honest people uh, make a good living uh, because they're honest and not, and, and then have some way to, to regulate liars. Mm. I mean, it happens in the medical industry often. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I might... <coughs> yeah, I, you know I think, what I mean. No, but you I think in responding to Dave, one, uh, yeah. of the, you know, one of the pushbacks I might say is, well, they tend to sometimes expose and regulate themselves, you know, without us having to, to focus on them. Um, and I agree, when we were discussing earlier, I was thinking like, yeah, like, you know, what would Jeremiah Johnson say? Would he, has he got a certificate on his cabin? <laughs> yeah. Mr. Westcott, uh, um, could, you, could you also, your, your thoughts on, on how we move forward with the teaching of these skills? I think if it gets people outside, go do it. <laughs> you know, just get, the more people outside, the better. Uh, and I think that's a, a good thing. What about the outside? What's gonna happen to it? Well, it'll, Take care we of already know that, the, as, as Morris told us, all the trees will be cut down if we build too many bow beds. So. But I think, you know, get people outside is number one. And uh, if, they're, if they're going, more power to them. If, if you're looking at it from a profession and you're talking about being a, a teacher, then I think that's a little bit different. Yes. But at the same time, I agree with David, you know, if you're doing something that ends up stifling creativity, then, then you've ruined the whole thing. So there's got to be some way that... You know, I think it's been an argument for a long time across the pond how, how this should be going forward. Um, and I don't think they've even answered it after 20 plus years. So um, as, as recent as it is here, I don't know if we're ever going to get there either. It'd be nice to, to kind of get it by the, by the hand early and um, decide, well, I... I I don't have the answer. I've well, actually, if I'll respond to you a bit, and, and, and I think Mr. Bobo might be able to answer. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping in front of you there, but uh, another, you know, another thought was, it was put to me this, this morning, is, well, in many ways, what can happen in situations like this is right now we're behind that. Now there's some kind of st strange and weird accident that happens to some school student somewhere. Now the government is saying, these skills need to be regulated. Now, or sorry, we were in front of it now. Now we're behind it. Now we're playing catch-up. And then they're saying, well, who? Well, let's call Mr. Kochansky and Mr. Westcott. And, and let's get, get 20 people in a, in a boardroom, but we're playing catch-up because somebody died. So it does become, this is a very 
sort of ugly, messy discussion that we aren't going to solve here tonight. Everyone understand that, but it is important that that all you instructors out there hear what these gentlemen have to say. And uh, Andre, I can I can see you've got something there, so I'll, I'll turn this to you. Yeah, well, if, if somebody has been a rebel, guilty, for example, getting getting a. Uh, 40 cords of firewood dumped on the university land right in front of the university and getting my students to go chop it up and sell it to people for financing and, and ways to learn how to do that. I almost got crucified for that kind of stuff. You know? And in academia, you can just imagine, I'm going to take them caving in Mexico. Okay. I'm going to take them on a bicycle ride from Colorado to California over the Rocky Mountains. And I did it. Lots of people, like so many people put fences in front of me and they didn't want me to go there. And they didn't want me to cut firewood because they looked, oh, he's cutting firewood. No. I'm supposed to be a university professor and I do this. And I'm dressing with my clothes I make myself. And I'm doing weird things like hanging uh, moose hides from the windows of the university and <laughs> stuff like that. How'd I get away with it is what's important. Because on one day, I'm riding my motorbike down the stairs. <laughs> and on the next day, I'm producing a scientific report which is spot on. It comes back to what David and David were saying. Do it right. Do it clean, do it perfect, and they cannot complain, see? And this is what we have to do. We have to do it right, do it clean, do it perfect, like irreproachable. When I want to take my students to Colorado, it was this thick, and the students had made it. So every single uh, thing that they wanted to say, you can't take the students across the Rocky Mountains because of the van, because of things. What are they going to learn? Well, I took four courses. They were going to learn philosophy of outdoor education, leadership in outdoor education, research in outdoor education. So we were testing uh, outdoor gear for the research part. We were going to, to Loretto Taft campus in Illinois. We were going to visit a nuclear factory. They were going to learn English. They were going, and we documented every single thing and did it right. And the, the document was this thick. See? So anything that they could possibly imagine putting in against us, sorry, we got an answer for you. It is perfect. And they, can't, they cannot do anything about it, see? So science is very important too. And I was discussing with this with my, my, my buddy and partner, uh, Manu Trancao, Dr. Manu Trancao, who works, who has replaced me at the university. And we're discussing this a lot. You know, he is bringing science into wilderness survival. Like, I mean, pure and hard science. Uh, review, peer-reviewed articles in scientific magazines. So he's proving that the research in wilderness survival and the research in bushcraft and, and people like Linda and uh, Teresa and all the others that are, and, and, and Lisa, they're, they're doing fantastic things with academia and bringing it back on the map as a true and, and studyable subject that is possible to publish in peer-reviewed things. And because it's solid, it's straight, it's Nobody can say anything about it. We gain our letters of nobleness through that. And other people appreciate it anyway because it doesn't prevent us from being a rebel. See? Yeah. It doesn't prevent us from being a rebel and, 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 and being colorful. But we have to be colorful and at the same time be serious. Mm -hmm. Can't do one without the other. I think what you're hearing is vital and important information from all of these gentlemen. Um, because many of you are instructors and work with kids and want to move forward in this and can trip over your, your own feet and your own ideals and thinking it's all just cool. Rebel, yes, but methodical and meticulous before you can be a rebel. As they say, you must learn and live the rules before you can start breaking them. Clearly, we are all knowing that all four of you gentlemen, we want many, many, many more years of instruction from you, inspiration from you, guidance, and learning. That said, there are new crops. Who is there today 
that we also, that's out there now, that's vibrant and teaching skills that we might not know of here at this conference that we can look to? I'll start with you, David. Uh, that's, that's hard to stick with just a couple. I'd say, I'd say that, are you talking about schools or people? Schools and or people. Your choice. Well, we just had the pleasure of the Boulder Outdoor Survival School allowing the old timers to come train them for a few days to tell them about what it used to be like. And it was their idea. So they brought a bunch of us old timers over there to put them through the mill and trying to figure out how to. And I was really encouraged to see how great and powerful and loving and strong and capable there's a lot of young people out there that are great. So not to name any names, all of them impressed me. And I go away saying, I think I would with confidence send anybody to that school right now because I think they're going to get a good experience. And we didn't used to be able to say that because we didn't know them anymore. Yeah. David Westcott? In the field, probably Tim Smith, uh, Jack Mountain Bushcraft. He's not here because he's out doing what we're talking about. So I'd, I'd say he's an up-and-comer who's doing some pretty cool stuff. Um, so far as somebody who I've been <clears throat> stealing a lot of information from lately and has pumped out some really, really good stuff lately, that's Don Cavellis. Uh, the stuff he's doing on podology and, and fuel consumption and stuff like that is head and shoulders above just about anything else I've seen uh, in the field. And, and, I'm, and I'm stealing the stuff left and right and using it in my classes now because it's so good that... Um, I'll add my own to this, that if you're ever in Ontario, there's a sort of a hard-to-find fellow. Uh, you can usually reach him through David Arama School, but his name is Doug Getgood, and he is a wonderful man to learn from on all respects. So Doug Getgood in Ontario, uh, southern Ontario, out of Toronto, is, is someone who I recommend. And that's where I have to end this podcast, simply because that's where the recording stopped. If we came across as a little defensive... You have to remember that many of us have been bushcrafting and teaching primitive skills for over 30 years and some for over 40, and none of us did so to become famous or get rich. And so to watch so many people now putting out YouTube video after YouTube video under the guise of the bushcrafting title just to get the views without having walked the walk is concerning, if not disappointing. Don't get me wrong. There are some very talented young bushcrafters out there, and they deserve to be presenting their skills online. But let's face it, as someone who watched the basic skills of wilderness survival become bastardized by wannabe TV stars, I can relate to the way these bushcrafting titans on stage that day felt. Bushcrafting, primitive earth skills, and even basic survival skills are born of a place of connection to the earth, or of developing a craft that can not only keep you alive, but can expand your relationship with the natural processes of the planet. And so this is why the old guard, if you will, has so much respect for these skills, and perhaps a little disdain for seeing it all become a business. This podcast is, as the saying used to go, brought to you by Aggressor Adventures. Choose your adventure. Surviving Life with Les Stroud is presented by the Apostrophe Podcast Network and is mixed by Keith Ullman. You're surviving life with me, Les Stroud. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, as I have hundreds of videos there and more going up every week. From Survivor Man Archive to Bigfoot to Wild Harvesting Tips to Urban Disaster Survival. It's all there and it's all free. My brand new series, Wild Harvest, featuring local foraging and turning those wild edibles into sumptuous dishes, is now on National Geographic Asia, PBS stations in the United States, and Cottage Life Television in Canada. The brand new special, Surviving Disasters with Les Stroud, is now on a PBS station near you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the United States or on my YouTube channel,
And my brand new children's book, Wild Outside, written for your kids. It's all about getting your kids into the out of doors. And it's out now. Google it. I'm an easy find on Google for those and so much more that I produce during any given year, no matter what's happening on the world stage. We'll figure this life out together. Cue that rip and harmonica solo, Keith. <laughs> 